Welcome to the Focus Forward Business Podcast from SturdyMcKee.com. Hey, welcome. This is Sturdy McKee, and you're here with us in the Focus Forward Business Podcast. Today, I have John Spence. John Spence is an internationally recognized business expert who's helped everybody from startup founders to Fortune 10 companies. Um, John has been rec- is and has been recognized as one of the top business thought leaders and leadership development experts in the world for over 30 years. He is the author of one of my favorite books, Awesomely Simple, which I happen to have sitting right here. Oh, you're um, sweet. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. And if we turn it around, it's got my notes and scribbles and all that stuff in it too. But That's cool. um, in keeping with that title, John is a master of making the very complex, awesomely simple. So thank you. Thank you. And truly thank you, John, for being here today. I appreciate it. It's a great honor. It's fun to spend time with you, my friend. Cool. Thanks. Um, so I know people can check out your origin story. We talked about that on your website. So if you're okay with it, we're just going to jump forward and um, get into some of the great ideas that you can share. How's that? That sounds awesome. Cool. Okay. So I want to just start with, let's kick it off. You're a big proponent of what in your book you call a vivid vision, right? Mm-hmm. Which consists of why your organization exists, where you're ultimately going, your destination, and how everybody's expected to behave along the way. Yeah. Why is that so important to you and in your experience? So we're going to tie it together. We got vision, mission, values, and then I would add in purpose. Uh, I think that people need to see, they need a vivid, compelling vision of the future with a strategy to support it and what I would call a noble purpose. So I want to get excited about where the company's going. I want to see the role I'm playing it. I want to be able to every day look at what I do whether you know I'm, I'm doing something fairly mundane or you know I'm a super senior executive and say what I do is adding to the ability of this organization to get where we want to go. And then it's changed. I mean, I wrote that book in 2009 and about mm-hmm. 99% of it is still accurate, but there's right. been obviously a lot of stuff that's changed. And what's really come to the forefront is the idea of purpose. Um, the generations that are coming into work now, uh, you know, Paycheck is important, but purpose is just as important and sometimes more important. And when you can align the vision of the organization, where we're going, with that exciting purpose, and it aligns with people personally, they're excited about those, that's one of the highest motivation uh, tools you can possibly have. Well, I love that you said that, because in the context, I was looking up late, uh, a couple of days ago, the latest research it's improved, and this is part of scary. The latest research, though, shows that 64% of American employees are disengaged at work. Yeah, and I think it's 22% maybe, or I, saw, I was looking at the research today myself, yes. are actively disengaged, which is, I always use a boat analogy. An engaged oh. person is, you know, rowing. <laughs> a disengaged so, person is just the stuff's dragging in the water, and an actively disengaged is drilling holes in the boat or pouring water, trying <laughs> right, to sink right, it. Right. Uh, right. It's scary. Yeah, it's really scary. Uh, yeah. But hopefully, while well, you were going, uh, we both we both looked at the research recently. Yeah, yeah. We, well, I I really like that because I I use the dragon boat analogy for a couple things and what I, I didn't do. know that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So um, yeah, I love it because you know when you break down the three types of work, you've got the you know the the captain the, in the back, the coxswain up front facing in. You've got the technical mm-hmm. people in in the boat. And yeah, a lot of them have 10 people in the boat. So if you look at that and start thinking about, you know, only the three or four people up front are paddling, number one, <laughs> how fast, yeah. how fast is your boat going? 
right? And uh, yeah, and then a whole idea around two or three of them are back there, like hitting other people's paddles or, you know, paddling the wrong way or whatever. Yeah, that's, you, are you, how many races are you going to win that way? Yeah, there's, I'm going to make two quick comments on that. One yeah. is what we're saying together is especially pertinent to smaller businesses. If you have 5,000 employees and a couple aren't paddling or they're hitting each other over the head with a paddle, eh. but if you only have 10 employees like in the boat and two or three aren't really trying, that's 30% of your workforce that's not that excited. Uh, and then I'm going to I'm gonna mess up this story. I'm just going to say there was, I don't want to say it's an Olympic team, but something, a crew team, a road team. Sure. And they were trying to get better and better. And whoever the coach was said, when they wanted to change something or do something, he said, well, this make the boat go faster. That Every time, well, we should do that. Well, this make the boat go faster. If right. it does, we'll do it. If it doesn't, we won't. And I always, that's a great question for a business. Will this make us more efficient? Will this make us more successful? Will this help us live our purpose? Well, and back to you know, your components of the vision, that destination, the BHAG, if you will, you know, where you're ultimately headed, um, will it help us go faster in that direction? Well played. Right. Yes, exactly, Sturdy. Yeah, because there are some things that help it go faster, but we're suddenly going, you know, 90 degrees to the left. And... <laughs> going faster at the shore. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> That's, well, you've seen that happen. I've seen it happen. Uh, it's one of the reasons I'm in, I do what I do is I've unfortunately seen too many businesses uh, because of a few people, just a handful of people make two or three or 400 or 500 people lose their jobs. And it's not just them. It's their families and the community and the right. restaurants and everybody else. I mean, that's was one of the first things that really drove me to want to, to be a consultant or a trainer like I am is. I, if three people can make 400 people lose their jobs, could we just make those three people better or help the culture eject them? <laughs> Something, right. but it, it was so unfair to me. Yeah. So what, what do you see? What's the dysfunction? Why does that happen? What are like the top two reasons that you see that? Ego, mm -hmm. uh, an ego, <laughs> uh, <laughs> pretty much. I mean, yeah. let me just, it, it's um, and I'll just use a classic example. A recent recent one I worked with, three hundred and something employees, ten people on their senior management team. Two of them hated each other, uh, wouldn't talk, wouldn't you know, wouldn't share resources, totally siloed, um, spread rumors about the other one, and they literally pulled down an entire company with them. So is their ego of I'm smarter, I'm better, I'm faster? There's always communication issues. Uh, and then um, unintended consequences of uh, payment, remuneration. Uh, you pay a certain person on what our profits are this quarter. Uh, you know, if I'm the senior executive and I get a stock option or even in a regular company, I'm the head of sales and, you know, I get a bonus on how many sales. I've seen people who will bend the rules or break them to, to pile a whole bunch of numbers in there. No, mm -hmm. you know, just before they're going to quit or leave or, or hope nobody figures it out. Sure, sure. So you just mentioned a word culture. And one of the things I've been, I guess, based on some feedback from some prospects and some clients, needs to define these words a little bit more. Yeah. You know, because uh, we, we get used to them and I, I, I think I know what it means. But can you go in and elaborate a little bit more about what how you would define culture in an organization? I could do it very, very simple. It's how we treat each other around here. It's the Perfect. accepted behaviors, the behaviors that are not accepted, 
Uh, and it's also the way we treat our customers and our vendors and everything, but it's, it's our approved behaviors that make us work together uh, in a collaborative way to make the organization more successful, take good care of our customers, take good care of our vendors. Uh, and a lot of people say, that, you know, oh, well, here I have a phrase, culture equals cash. In most mm -hmm. of the organizations I've worked with worldwide, you know, we could increase efficiency or effectiveness. We could do things, you know, a little bit faster, maybe get a little bit more market share. But the place it has, to me, one of the largest direct impacts on the success or failure of an organization is the quality of their culture. So well, the way I look at those, the core values is those are kind of the underpinnings of the culture. Those are the rules. Can you talk for a second about how important it is to be intentional and explicit and deliberate about what those are versus kind of letting your culture happen yeah. by default? Um, there, there is no culture by default. There's only culture by design. Uh, the And so let's look at it. First of all, is making it very clear, um, you know, defining it, talking about what does it mean. Another, and this is a weird thing for me to say, but like corporate lore, um, the Ritz-Carlton does a great job every day at lineup telling a story about someone in the organization worldwide that's a, a great example of living the values. So telling stories about what's, you know, what's right, things like that. But the single most important driver of culture by every measure is a leadership team. Uh, as goes the leadership team, so, so goes the entire company. If you talk about integrity and one of the senior leaders wants to cheat a customer, then everybody in the company will cheat a customer. So, you know, as a leader, you live under a microscope. There's a, a great word I like called uh, a phrase, symbol management, that, you know, people watch everything you do. If you stop to pick up a piece of paper in the, in the parking lot where you, park, you know, you're the CEO and you park at the farthest end of the parking lot, let other people closer, or you answer emails quickly, return phone calls, that tells everybody else in the organization these things are important. If you do the reverse, <laughs> I have a good friend who does what I do and what he'll do to, to test the culture of an organization before he goes, he'll ball up a, a big piece of paper and stick it next to the front door in the morning before they start work and see how many people walk past it. Mm -hmm. So that brings up another great thing, the integrity piece, um, and not just from saying we need to show integrity, but that fidelity to the values being super important at every level of the organization. So if you're the founder and you're being intentional, you're being explicit and you're defining these things, one of the things I kind of warn clients about is that they need to be real. You don't want to do aspirational values necessarily. Yeah. Because then you're not, you know, you run the you run the risk or worse of not living up to those and not not standing up to the scrutiny. Yeah. The again, you and I said earlier that the the values needed to be defined very, very clearly. What's appropriate, what's not appropriate. If you have in, like something world-class, that's a night, you know, we will only deliver world-class customer service. There's very few organizations that can afford to be truly world-class. Uh, so, you know, you could say best, you know, we'll deliver excellent customer service. Uh, but, you know, world-class would mean that you have to win global awards for your customer service. So if right. I go to the, the dry cleaner down the street, we'll only deliver world-class customer service. Is our, Have you been awarded one of the top 10 dry cleaners in the world in customer service? But excellent customer service is something that's achievable. Uh, and there's mm -hmm. another idea to this. If I make them clear, the founders live them, the company lives them. If, if, you know, if someone makes a prudent 
business mistake, a thoughtful mistake, and they mess something up, I can live with that. But if someone violates the values and we can prove it, they must be removed from the organization because if you leave them there, you're telling everybody else we were just kidding. The values are just something we made up. Right, exactly. They don't come to life for real. Right. Um, another thing I heard you talk on recently that I it really grabbed me and I really, really liked and wanted to explore a little bit was um, IQ, EQ, and AQ. Can you go into that just a little bit? Sure, sure. I um I was asked to do a TED talk on the future of leadership. And mm. you know, there's some things we just talked about, integrity. There's some sure. things that fundamental leadership will never change. Uh integrity, honesty, uh, you know, competence, things like that, collaboration, communication. I, I teach a model that's all C's, so I can remember them. I'm getting older. <laughs> but uh as I look at what it's going to take to be an effective leader in the future, there's three quotients, if you will, that I focus on. The first one's IQ, but it's not the number. The idea there is competence. And the, there's two parts to competence. A, you got to be really good at whatever your job description is, whatever you're supposed to do every day. But then B, you need to be really competent at your leadership skills. Uh, and other than integrity, honesty, things like that, if you don't have those, I can't teach them to you. But if you're a really good person that's you know values-based and you live a life of integrity and honesty... A lot of the other leadership skills can be trained. They can become competencies. Uh, the right. next one is EQ, which is one we've been focusing on a ton, which is your emotional quotient, uh, or other people call it uh, your intelligence quotient, um, or your, yeah, intelligence quotient. Emotional intelligence. Yep. Yeah. There's a couple, Daniel Goldman called a couple of different things, but his the guy who basically brought it to, to the forefront, Daniel Goldman, he calls it EQ. So um, there's a couple of elements of that that are really important that I, I just did a huge training on this for 120 CEOs. And there's a couple core factors. So we, we can go into a lot more depth. And if you want to later ask me, but the, the three that are the most, to me, stand out the most in EQ is self-awareness, being able to step back from a situation, and actually identify the real feelings and emotions you're having. You know, for a lot of people, if you ask someone, what are the emotions you had in the last week? Most people only have four or five answers. I was mad, happy, angry, whatever it might be. Someone who is really good self-reflective has an entire palette of colors and feelings where they go, I was frustrated, I was confused, I was anxious, I was stressed, I was joyful, I was grateful, whatever it might be. And EQ is mostly on negative uh, emotions. How do you, because that leads to the second part, which is self-regulation. Mm -hmm. um, I have identified myself as, as being angry, now let me regulate my response to a, to be appropriate in the situation. As I talk about those things, I'm sure everybody watching and listening says, yeah, I've met people that don't do that very well. Hey, they <laughs> have, <yeah>. Never, never. <laughs> we don't have any connection at all to their emotions. It just, and then they blurt and they yell and they scream yeah. or they, you know, they embarrass people or whatever it might be. Well, that's that lack of awareness and regulation. Then the third one is empathy, uh, which is trying to understand the emotions and feelings of other people. The cool thing about EQ is it, it is a learned skill. You can improve that number. Uh, then the last one is AQ, which is your adaptability or agility quotient. And again, there's a lot of factors in this, but I'll just give you a couple of what sure. I, the two that I think are the most, no, the three I think are the most important the first one is uh, agile thinking or learning agility. That's the word, learning agility. 
which means two things. Let's go back to IQ, a voracious de a desire to learn more information, to read, study, improve. Uh, I've used this statistic a gazillion times. The average business person reads a half a business book a year. Uh, and, and I can give you my notes. As people who write business books, this is exceedingly painful. But uh, that idea, you know, if you're going to be adaptable and agile and quick, which we all have to be to, to move forward in the, you know, in the marketplace we're in, uh, you got to be reading, studying, learning, watching podcasts, listening to podcasts, going to blogs, blah, 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 blah. Um, but here's the other side of that that I love sturdy. It's the ability to unlearn things quickly. Right. To say this, no, you know, a lot of the things that worked really well about five years ago don't work at all anymore. Right. So it's really not only to learn lots of new stuff fast, but to unlearn lots of new things fast. That's learning agility. The next one is flexibility, which is now that I've learned these things and unlearned these things, do I have the willingness to actually make the change myself? Will I change my behavior? Will I change my company? Will I be flexible in the way I operate? And then the last one is, there's a couple more, but the last one is resilience, which is because I'm learning and unlearning and trying and doing things and being in it, there's going to be failure and it's going to be challenging. And I've got to be able to bounce back from that and be strong in the face of difficulties. Sure. I, I mean, I would, I'm also thinking about the agility, the adaptability quotient in an environment that's changing, you know, again, we, what it used to be, there would be a, a fundamental change once a generation or once a decade, maybe, or what have you. And now we're moving into, you know, AI and some of the other things that are happening. And it's really insane how quickly, how rapidly some of the changes are, are coming at us. Yeah, this isn't actually me. This is chat GPT with a virtual reality because <laughs> I'm not this smart at all. <laughs> Uh, well, I used, have yeah. you used chat GPT yet? Oh yeah. Yeah. I've been using it quite a bit. And I actually on a strategy day yesterday, um, it, you know, we were going through the SWAT kind of an extended SWAT with trends and that, and nobody, I put in artificial intelligence because nobody did. Right. And then showed them what it, you know, what it did. And like, you know, come up with a, an ankle rehab program for a 13 year old soccer player with a grade two sprain. And within 60 seconds, it had a seven step program. It wasn't perfect, but it wasn't bad. A lot better advice than some of the stuff you'll find, you know, Google searching or whatever. Um, and they were liter literally, people were sitting there staring with their mouths wide open. Well, I, I leave in about a month and a half. To, I've been spent the last 25 years as sort of a, uh, as a lecturer at the Wharton School of Business for a very high level executive program. ChatGPT just passed the Wharton MBA test. <laughs> well, and that's three, right? We're uh, <laughs> yeah. So for those who haven't done it yet, you got to get on and play around with it. The 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 thing that blows me away though is Chat GPT three was what September of twenty twenty was the last of the database and yeah. finite database, and it's learning off of that, but. Um, and even with that, the answers are amazing. It passed the Wharton exam. It comes up with a rehab program. I had them translated into Spanish and Japanese while we were on as people were sitting there staring and going, oh my God, right? I read and this then, morning that it passed some medical exams too. And oh, it passed uh, the bar. Oh, <laughs> I'm not even gonna comment on the last uh, one. Now, let me give uh, the other side of this. You know the thing we just said, EQ? 
Yeah. GPT will never have EQ. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. You will never replace ever what we're doing right now and meeting with clients and talking to your employees. It's going to be great in the background. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, I've, I've read a minimum of 100 business books since 1989. Typically, to do a, a slide deck when I'm going to do a presentation, I'll read 1,000 pages mm-hmm. and try to boil it down, make it a complex simple, boil it down to 20 or 30 pages, maybe. Um, I put some stuff in. I had already done a bunch of research on something and boiled it down to seven pages of the best stuff I could come up with. I put the the query into chat GPT. It came up with almost the exact same stuff, except for it took it 35 sec- seconds and it took <laughs> two and a half weeks. Yeah. Right, right, right. So I, I'm well, not going to use it only, but I looked at it and went, I could have saved 40 hours of reading you know, or research or study sure. with what it just spit out in under a minute. Right. And then you can go in and edit it and use it and make it your own. But, but yeah, ex- I've totally done that. Yeah. Um, but for those who are kind of listening and aren't aware yet, GPT-4 is meant to come out sometime later this year. And the database is oh, 570 times as big. And and it's going to be connected to the internet. Yeah. yeah. Grab more on its own. So yeah. at Wharton, I teach a class on the future of business. And I don't get, get into technology too much, but Moore's Law, which I'm sure you're aware of, yes. basically, and we, I won't go into the background, says... Computer speeds double and half in price about every 18, 24 months. When you get to something like ChatBGT or the stuff we have now, the supercomputers we have, when it doubles, that exponential, it's it's mind-boggling how fast. And then remember, it'll probably double again in the next year and a half and then double again and double. We don't go to, because now we're looking, I just, before we got on, was watching some stuff with Boston Dynamics and their new oh, yeah. robots. When you put all this stuff together, it's like Skynet. So we're not going to go any further into that. <laughs> a little Black Mirror action here. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. Uh, okay. So, so, um, so in that kind of context, now that we've frightened everybody to death um, <laughs> with their businesses, what what would you suggest to small business owners? What can they do to leverage this stuff to prepare for it? To um, really think about what they, you know, what their future looks like three, five, ten years down the road. Yeah, it's um, well, it's a couple of things. It's not going to destroy businesses, or it might, you know, take a few away or a few people, but it's going to add lots and lots more stuff. So it's going to balance out. I'm not worried about Chat GPT or or AI or any of that stuff or the super massive computers wiping out industries. What it's going to do, it's going to make them go faster. So. If I, as a business owner myself and the clients I have around the world, I'm looking at how can you become more efficient, more effective? Uh, like, I can't trust that to do my research, but I can use it as a framework to do my research. I still have to read stuff and look stuff and get into other things. And you and I say, I, my financial advisor could get a massive amount of data now, but I don't want a spreadsheet. I want to sit down at lunch with him and have him talk to me and How's your wife? What's going on? What's happening with your family? Where are you going to wear these things? What's your uh, your risk threshold? What do you think about that? Um, I don't, and we talked about this in my class, I don't want a robot rolling into my uh, hospital room and going, you have cancer. Uh, now, I wouldn't mind it doing screening to, right. you know, because a, a computer like that can do literally hundreds of millions of computations a second about my particular 
uh, blood work and stuff. So I think what you look at is A, where can I use this to improve my company? B, how can I replace things that where humans don't add any value? How can I let it do chat bots and things like that? But then on the other side of it is how can I imp improve and increase the human touch so that I'm using the human touch as a major differentiator? That, yeah, I have all that other, but when it comes to it, I'm going to sit down with you and talk to you. We're going to be here to help you. We're going to make things highly customized for you. Um, it, it, and as you mentioned, it's moving so fast, it, it's hard to keep up with it. Uh, but I think it's going to have a lot of a lot of parts where it removes people or things, but it's going to have many more jobs that it opens up, which are going to focus again highly on EQ. The IQ part of it, the AI is going to take over a lot of that. Uh, but a computer is not going to uh, likely anytime soon go and argue a case for you uh, and, and make those sort of things happen. Right. No, I couldn't agree more. A lot of the folks I work with are in healthcare and the, the IQ part of things is a little bit scary, but that being able to relate to people and figure it out, all the, what we call the soft skills, right? But they're right. so incredibly important. Um, yeah, I'm kind of wondering where the academic programs and stuff are going to go with that as well. Like, will there be a bit of a shift from like when I went to grad school to much more of the relationship-based, conversational, relating to people, empathy, those types of things and starting to teach people how to how to do that better. Yeah, um, I, I'm going to quadruple back you there. In, in a lot of my, I did this, I did a workshop the other night with 700 people in Australia, which, you know, some, this is a great question I'll pose to you and then and your listeners or watchers. Somebody asked me not too long ago, what's been great about the pandemic? That's an interesting question. Uh, yes. There's lots of bad stuff. But I looked at it and said, I'm now doing business all over the world on the same day. I could right. do a presentation in India in the morning, hang out with my friends, you know, in the United States, then do something in Australia, New Zealand in the evening. It's expand. Well, there's two parts of it. The world is now your talent pool. And as a, right. as a, so as a, when I won't say sole practitioner, but it's like a gig person, uh, the world is now your employer too. So there's a lot of things that we can look at those sort of things. But in my workshops, I will ask people, draw, uh, and this for everybody watching and listening, do this in your head. It's it's going to be interesting. I'll say, write best boss ever at the top of one side of the piece of paper, write worst boss ever. Draw a line down the middle. Then I want you to write, why was this person so good? What were the skills, the attributes, the behaviors, the competencies, you know, all the things that made this someone I'd love to work with. What same thing? What are all the things that made this one so evil? Uh, and then after they've written that, and I say, now next to each one of them, I want you to write: Is this IQ or EQ? Is this a competence thing or an emotional behavioral thing? Uh, then I have add them all up. Won't go through that. It's typically five or seven to one EQ after over IQ. The reason I love someone is the quote unquote soft skills. The reason I hate someone is the soft skills. If you're genius, but you, I, I won't use any profanity, but you're not a very nice person. I don't care how smart you are. I don't trust you to lead me because I know you're only out for yourself. Right, right, right. I liked, uh, I think you mentioned this before, not today, but the ability to get along with others. You know, that's a big indicator of that EQ piece. Yeah. So. And it's like a learned 
as someone who had a very, very, very low EQ many years ago, oh. this is a learned skill. It's something you can continue to work on and get better. Uh, so at least there's some hope. There's a light at the end of the tunnel and it's not a train. No, <laughs> it's not coming at you. <laughs> no, I couldn't agree more. I was been talking with a couple of clients over the last couple of days just about that. The, uh, you know, when I got out of school, I thought this was why people, you know, from a clinical standpoint, I thought if I had the right answers, they were going to magically do what I told them. And that just, that's not the case. You're dealing with people. Yeah. And that was, you know, that was missing, or at least largely missing from any of the academic type programs and trainings and stuff. And I kind of, you know, even today, you look back at that and go, what, man, how did they miss that? How was it, that it, not part of it? I won't name the hospital, but it was one of the premier hospitals in the world. And I worked uh, doing leadership training for their thoracic and neurosurgeons. And my joke was, is they thought that they were really, really good. Uh, and if God just worked harder, he might be able to catch up. Uh, <laughs> and <laughs> there's a thing called the intelligence trap, which is when you've been through a lot of training, you've got a bunch of things after your name. You, you know, you're like, well, I can take this brain apart and put it back together. I can fix your car. I could fly a plane or whatever. And these right. were a group of people that sort of felt that way. But it was fascinating because they had almost, not all of them, but many of them had zero bedside manner. You were a, a brain to work on. Right. This was a case. It wasn't a person. I mean, I remember sitting through one of the, um, I went on rounds with him. Mm -hmm. Six or seven doctors standing around talking about somebody's brain surgery. They never looked at the patient. Never interact yeah. with them. They just, just stood around talking to each other, looking at their charts, going, well, I got everything to me. Like, this is the most inhumane thing I've ever seen. Now, let's yeah. bring it back to business. As a leader, your most important customer by far is your employees. One of my favorite sayings is the customer's experience will never exceed the employee's experience. You want to have empathy. You want to have a personal connection. The first place is to start with your team. Take care of them, treat them with love and respect and kindness and help them be successful. You know, the future of your company is directly dependent on the quality of the people you can get, grow and keep on your team, period. Uh, so this EQ part of getting along with people and them doing great work, but getting along with each other and with your customers, without that, there is no, there is no success. No, you're not going to grow or scale. No, impossible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, John, you got my head spinning. So uh, <laughs> no, it's it's always great. I love I love talking, listening with listening to you, talking with you. Um, so, well, here's a here's an analogy I like to use with with a lot of my folks. Again, because of the you know a lot of our experience, or at least mine, and I think borne out by some of the research we just cited a minute ago, um, a lot of a lot of folks haven't had a lot of great managers. Yeah. You know, so even, even when you're doing that best boss, worst boss, sometimes the best boss isn't by comparison, they're great, but really they're not necessarily that great. Yeah. Um, and what I, what I see with a lot of founders is they're nervous about going out and being that guy. You know, they don't, they, they see management as an enforcement role or, you know, a traffic cop or the, I ask people this all the time too. Like, when's the last time when when you met with your boss back when you had a job before you started your business? Why did you meet with your boss, right? And it was usually because something was wrong, right? Yeah. I was going to, or or it was an annual review where you were apprehensive about 
you know, getting a raise or not, or something like that. Yeah. So all this emotional baggage and, and stuff comes with it and they don't want to be that person. So one of the things I do is talk to them about, you know, the best coach you ever had and, mm -hmm. and literally coach like athletic team, you know, you or your kid or somebody like that. And they're very often able to kind of see, well, yeah, they hold it accountable and yeah, they demand a lot because they believe in you, right? Because they had your back because, you know, you know that they want you to succeed and using that as the role model. Have you had much kind of experienced success trying to shift the mindset a little bit from, from that enforcement type model that we kind of is, I guess, stereotyped versus yeah. that supportive role? I've spent, you know, when I look at companies, and both you and I know this work around the world, uh, there's a couple of things they struggle with. Every company in the world struggles with communication. I don't care if you're a solo, solopreneur, you still argue with yourself. <laughs> but the next one is lack of accountability. And people think they're being mean when they hold people accountable. I just did this with a client the other day. The way to get around this, in my opinion, is to be excruciatingly clear about expectations. Leave nothing to chance. Uh, and when possible, make the uh, the expectations binary. You either did it or you didn't. There's no guessing. When I could take the guessing out of it and say, you know, Sturdy, I like you a lot. However, we agreed you were going to sell a million dollars this year and you've only sold 750000 You're okay, but the performance was not what we agreed on. How can we fix the performance? But a lot of people feel like, and, and then backing that up with you heard it, how can we do this? How can I help you, support you, train you? How can we come in to make sure? Because if, if you're not successful, I'm not successful. So the idea there is, is how can we get on the same team and agree, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I will deliver. You're going to give me all the resources, the decision-making stuff. That takes the politics, the personality, the emotions for some part out of it. Because it's not me versus you, it's me and you together versus the binary goals we agreed on together. With that comes in, like when you go see your boss, not, and it should be, you know, not once a quarter, it should be like a weekly one-on-one -on -one where you can say, hey, how are you doing on your goals? What are your numbers? Uh, and, and when people realize, this is a really important point, when people realize I'm tracking you and we have all these KPIs and numbers and binary goals, not to punish you, but to catch it as soon as you start to slip so I can get back on your team and help you get back up there. I don't want you to fail. Fail is bad for everybody. As soon as they figure out that tracking doesn't equal punishment, tracking equals help and support and mentoring and coaching, not that you do their job for them, but you're there to support them. All of a sudden, that the accountability becomes very clear. It's just fact-based, not feeling-based. Well, it's such a huge thing. One of the things you just said, well, a lot of what you said, but one little nugget that you just said, though, is if your players succeed, you succeed. And that's yeah. so obvious. That's so obvious in a sports context. But if you go back to that list you had people make of the best boss and the worst boss, we've all had that experience of it's like your boss doesn't want you to succeed. And In many cases, they don't. They're poor leaders. It's their ego. They right. are afraid. They have imposter syndrome. Uh, I know I had that when I was, I still have it. <laughs> but, you know, early in my career, I had to prove that I was right. I wasn't right. Uh, I had an opinion. I'm still not right. I have an opinion. It's a well thought out and well reasoned opinion. But earlier in my life, ego drove the need to be right, the need to do it my way. And that was one of the biggest 
mistakes of my early career that I've tried to overcome as much as I can. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a huge barrier, right? That whole need to be right. That that was a shift for me. And that was a big shift for me, probably, I mean, a while ago, but more than 10 years into the business, kind of going, you know what? I'm completely willing to be wrong. We're going to test these things. We're going to put them side by side. Your idea, my idea. Yeah, I have an opinion. I think mine's going to work, but I don't know that. Yeah. So why don't we run them in parallel and see which one works better? You know, I couldn't agree more. I, in my thirties, I'm now 58, uh, be 59 in about 20 days. I had to be right. And now I realize I am, there is no right or wrong on some, most stuff. A lot of stuff there is. It's two plus two is four, usually, depending on who your accountant is. But for the rest of it, it's just opinions. And when you give up that need to, it's my way or the highway, I'm the one that's right. You've got to do it my way. This is the way we've always done it. So a lot of those bosses, it's actually from a place of, in my opinion, a place of fear of being shown up or being shown to be wrong or that somebody else had a better idea than me or my way didn't work. And I'm painting a really broad brush here, but I, I, I heard a phrase the other day that I, lo I love, humble confidence. Mm -hmm. I, I think I'm pretty good at what I do. I've spent 30 years doing it, but I'm still humble enough to know that I'm, I a phrase that came up when I turned 58 was, I now realize I know almost nothing about almost nothing and very little about almost everything else. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Well, let's go back for a second. I'm loving Sure, of course. As long as you're cool. Uh, you mentioned the doctors earlier, and I think this is a huge, a huge potential pitfall for the highly educated. Okay. So I, I see it a lot in the professionals and professional world. Um, but if you think about anybody who's been to school, you know, particularly if they've gone beyond undergrad, but even then, you know, a lot of the folks we deal with have, have literally spent 20 years in school. Some of them are quite young, right? So, or, or maybe the people they're hiring out of school are young. They're 23, 24 years old, 25. They've spent two decades in school. And what I guess my major peeve with that is school teaches you to be right. You're rewarded for being right. And you just said it. For doing it by yourself. Right. Yeah. So, and the, the thing about like, you know, what a, my realization, especially after starting to hire people, right, was I had, tw <laughs> I, sorry, I had more than 20 years of school to get 20 years of school. Um, <laughs> so I, <laughs> I think I did 24 years to get to the 20, but anyway. Sounds like you were in prison. Yeah, I did 24 years. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I took some detours. I went to, I'll tell you this, I went to five undergrads. Um, but Holy. yeah, which I don't necessarily recommend, but anyway, I, I learned a lot. I, I mean, I did learn a lot. I learned a lot from that experience and, you know, and what have you, but, um, but anyway, the, the whole idea was as soon as you graduate, as soon as you graduate, the moment you're done, life is a team sport. Mm -hmm. Yep. Right. But you're conditioned, you know, more than half your life up until that point. You know, what, what do you call collaboration at Warden? What are we? Yeah. What are the, I'm not talking about you, but yeah. yeah, yeah. Be. If you collaborate on the final exam, what's that called? It's uh, cheating. <laughs> it, <laughs> yeah. I, I just, yeah. I, I didn't know where you were headed with that, but as soon as you said it, yeah. 
I, I just was asked to review the MBA program for a major university, and there was two things I told them, uh, neither one of which they did not like very much at all. Uh, the first one was, <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you what the second one they didn't like very much at all was in a second. But I said, the first one is when people graduate, they immediately work in teams. They, it's mm -hmm. not individual contributor. And, you know, and it's right. not like you said it perfectly. All our lives, we are programmed to say, I have to, in school, I have to find the one right answer. It's the only way to things. There is no one answer. Oh no! This MBA curriculum isn't there. Multiple classes on teamwork, high performance teams. Why aren't they working in teams? Why aren't they working in cohorts? And they kind of went, uh. uh then the other thing I said to them because I. I used to serve on the board of directors at a business school, and they asked me to do some research on this to look at what are the what are the best business schools in the world do. And I said, well, it's very easy. They bring in successful entrepreneurs that have actually built their own businesses, uh, you know, and, and running them, and who were actually out in the field and have signed a paycheck and you know had to make payroll and fire people. Students want to talk to people who are actually out in the field doing it. The professors went, no, I don't think that's a good idea. No, 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 of course no. We don't want anyone who, who actually does this. <laughs> we're, we're not, we've never done it, so I don't want anyone who's ever done it in here. We're teaching theory. Um, right. and, you know, don't get me wrong. I love business schools. I've taught it. I've, I've been a guest lecturer at more than 90 colleges and universities around the world. I love school. But when I was at MIT and a couple other places, the most popular classes were sitting down with someone who was in the trenches right now, or who was a founder and built their company to, you know, a million, a hundred million, a billion, uh, talking about, you know, here's the scar I got, and this is the time that happened, and sure. here's the year that everyone else in my company got paid and I didn't, uh, <laughs> right. been there, done that. <laughs> so uh, those were the two things, work in teams, which they eh, bring in successful entrepreneurs, eh, well, that's, there's nothing necessary for that. <laughs> I'm a boring interview, aren't I? No, well, no, not at all. <laughs> but that that last part's just painful, right? Because that's. I, I attend. I was an instructor at the uh, Entrepreneurial Masters Program, and I'm going to tie this to your readers and listeners. I mean, your watchers, listeners, mm -hmm. right now. Years ago, uh, for their um, Entrepreneurial Masters Program between an organization called the Entrepreneurs Organization and MIT. We yeah. brought in 67 of the top entrepreneurs in the world uh, for a three-year program. And everybody that you had to be, have grown a company, be a founder, to be an instructor. Just couldn't be up there unless you'd done it, been there, done that. It right. was the most powerful program I've ever been involved in. The professors hated it. <laughs> the ones that were guest lecturers. But for the rest of the, the group, it was like, all right, I'm, I'm sitting here in front. Now, let me take this. This Here's the most important thing I've ever learned. Um, you become what you focus on and like the people you surround yourself with. As a business person, a, a founder, um, who you choose to be on your team, who you surround yourself with, and what you focus on, your vision, your purpose, your strategy, your customers, your employees, determines the future of your company. And one of the things I learned at MIT and other places is it isn't just the team. You can have experts around the world. I mean, you and I correspond. We send ideas, information. It's one of the things I said was great about the pandemic. I've created really strong connections with people all over the world, and I'm learning from them. 
Uh, I, I'm learning a ton. So a great founder, like I was at MIT, where I had all these incredible entrepreneurs around. Any business owner can do that. You can get on LinkedIn. You can get on a call. You can send an email. And you can surround yourself with some of the smartest people in the world by also by reading, studying, you know, listening to podcasts, things like that. That's what the best people do is they, enter, you know, learn from people who've already been there, uh, how to do it right and, you know, what to avoid and not crash. Well, that, that brings up a, we'll try to wrap this up quickly or soon here, but the, uh, it brings up a great point. And a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of founders have a feeling of isolation. Right? They're kind of out there on their own. And I liken some of it to like parallel play and child development, right? They're out there doing it, but they don't even realize the other person's going through the same thing or whatever. And I would, you know, urge anybody listening to this that's kind of resonating with this point to join. You just mentioned EO, Entrepreneurs Organization. I was a member of that for a decade. I didn't know great, that. Yeah. You know, it's peer-to-peer. -peer. You learn from others, you bring in experts. I one of the things they encourage you to do in EO is take on roles you don't know how to do. So yep. I did the communications board role. I did the learning chair. If you're a learning chair, you get to choose the curriculum for the year or two, right? You get to bring in the experts you want to bring in. It's crazy. It's awesome, right? Um, so that's another one. Um, you know, look for an entrepreneur, look for a group of entrepreneurs around you and not just a referral, you know, we're going to send each other business, but more of a peer-to-peer -peer learning group. You know, I'm a member of Thai now, uh, the SoCal chapter, but um, yeah, those are those connections and those people who've been down those paths before are it's incredible. It's yeah, so, what so, we're so basically fun. talking about here is a mastermind group from Napoleon yeah. Hill, They Can Grow Rich. I, you know, I failed out of college on the first try. I graduated number three in the United States on my second try. And it was because of the people I surrounded myself with. I had a study group. Uh, where we worked together, we studied together, we went to class together. We there were six of us. We graduated number one through six from the university we went to. Today, fast forward, I still have a study group. I have about 18 CEOs that about once every 45 days, we get together, we sign reading, we bring in experts, we do stuff. It's basically my own private little entrepreneurs organization. You know, when I became a CEO at 26, I started one CEOs under the age of 30. Then when I was 31, it was under the age of 40. After that, I kind of gave up. <laughs> I didn't want to keep the numbers going up. But, you know, and the way I did that is I found one person I was really impressed with or two and said, let's start this group. But I said, you have to bring in someone I don't know that you're really impressed with, someone that you are really admire. Same thing to them. You, you have to bring in someone that you really admire, want to learn from. And we've created that group and that group's been together for 22 years and we that's still awesome. help each other out. We do something else that's really interesting, which I love is we also pick a charity every year and all of us together, um, we live in the same town. We've got a, a little bit of pull and access to resources. We pour all that into one charity every year and it's just, it's a nice way to balance building our businesses, helping each other, working and then doing something great back for the community. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, cool. Thanks for sharing. And thanks so much for the conversation, John. This has been great. I mean, really, truly great. I hope everybody listening and watching has gotten, uh, you know, a half dozen things they can use. Just remember, all the ideas in the world won't work for you if you don't implement them. Okay, so you got to take what you're what you're thinking about what you're excited about, and make it come to life in your business, make it happen. 
Thank you. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you for listening.